You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Things are looking pretty dire for two teams in the NBA. As we saw last night, Miami cruised to victory over Philadelphia again with Joel Embiid still out, and Phoenix put the beaten on the Mavs despite a big night from Luka. Can either of those teams force these series to be more interesting? It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. And Fitz, coming in hot off the ESPNW Summit in New York, but I was keeping an eye on the NBA. And I think we got to make this straight talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless because the straightest talk there is is, is this over? Both of these series, just two games in, or is it the old, you know, got to win a game at uh, on the on the road or uh, you know all the cliches that we could come up with all oh, uh, Joel Embiid can still come back or what are we thinking here is it over I think it is but I think part of that is because when you look at what's happened and what can change right so to your point with the 76ers I think the only hope anybody can have is that Joel Embiid is actually Superman and he can come in and force the team to go on a run but in order to do that he has to get on the court, and he has to be 100% of himself. So that's hard for me to see. And the same as I was watching Phoenix just absolutely slap uh, Dallas all over the place, I kept thinking, man, what what can change here? If you're Luka and you're giving everything you got, like there's no easy change that gives you a path. So I look at two two series that I hoped would be competitive, and what I see is just two really bad matchups and we all know that NBA playoff basketball is so much about matchups it feels like both of the teams that are trailing in their existing series right now are just overwhelmed and undermanned to be able to handle what's being thrown at them yeah and you know what Fitz this is sort of what we expected at least for sure um I think without Embiid the expectation was you would need to see a super heroic effort from James Harden and neither you nor I thought he still had it in him he played better in game two 20 points nine assists getting a ton of attention from the defense um but that's that's not good enough and when you talk to him and they did after the game um he's still being optimistic but I don't know that he's got answers here's James Harden we have plenty of opportunities. You know, I mean, I think we played a pretty solid game. We gave them, you know, a couple, you know, big offensive rebounds. But other than that, I think we did a pretty good job of just getting off to a really good start and then uh, taking their punches, being an aggressor. I think we did a really good job of that. Things just didn't go our way um, as much as we needed it to. But for the most part, I mean, we're still a confident group and we're going to go home and, and, and do what we're supposed to do. In the playoffs, uh, the series doesn't start till you know, the, the road team wins. And uh, we didn't get one, you know, out of the first two, but go home and take care of business and we'll be back here for game five. Go home and take care of business is a nice, easy way, but it doesn't have a lot of specifics fits. They're getting killed inside without Embiid on second chance points, on rebounds, on paint scoring. Um, and, and even worse, they can't make good on the outside at all. Uh, and, and that's certainly a part of, of Embiid not being out there, but they cannot hit from three. That's the hardest part, I think, of what everybody saw last night is that there were opportunities. And, in fact, within each quarter, it felt like at times Philly was playing tight with Miami. And then at the end of the quarter, it's like they ran out of gas. They ran out of turbo button. It was taking everything that they had to stay in the process. And then by the end of it, they were losing the, uh, they were losing the end of quarters. So it felt like they were trying their best to be competitive. And even when they had open looks, they couldn't get them to fall. It, 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 
it feels like everything's a little overwhelming and nothing's easy for Philadelphia at this point. And Miami is the type of team that's not going to turn around and let them back in the series. Like, they're too well coached. They have too much experience. They know what they're doing here. I, I, I think we've got to get a little tip of the hat to the Heat, how good they are, how mm-hmm. good Spolstra is, and look at it and say, man, this is the type of team that knows, all right, we got them down, and, and one more win, and they're down for the count. There's nothing that they're going to be able to do to come back from 0-3. I think Miami's going to come out fired up to, to, to put them down and just say, hey, this series is done. Game three will be in Philly uh, tomorrow night, 7 Eastern on ESPN. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Vince Carter on KJ and Max this morning uh, addressed the fact that they don't have enough other talent to put James Harden in a position to be able to score. You can't draw attention if you don't have shooters. My question when the trade happened was, where's the shooting coming from? Where are they going to get shooting coming from? That's the problem. You traded your elite shooter. And we look at Harden, Maxi, and Tobias, and they were 4 for 14. And then you look at Danny Green, Niang, and Korkmaz, who will probably be your three-point shooters, 4 for 16. That's 8 for 30. So uh, they're not making it any easier. Yes, James Harden doesn't have the first step and not like the Houston Harden that we know, but they can't go any other way to make the game easier for him. Unless, have a little ball movement. Get James Harden a live dribble on the second side. Start the ball on one side, let the defense shift to the other side, and then kind of let him work his way and draw fouls that way instead of just dribble, 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 try to create. Those days are gone right now. Yeah, I mean, those days are gone, but so is his ability to beat his man, beat guys off the dribble, create shots for himself. He's taken fewer than 20 shots um, in every game as a sixer this season. I don't think that's going to change just because Joel Embiid is out as much as you wish it would because the opportunity is there. It's about the creation of a shot, and he, he can't do that anymore the same way. Yeah, and, and all of this pinches in Philly to, to essentially have to look in the mirror and figure out who they are, who they're going to be, and how they change mm-hmm. any of that. They're too too far deep at this point to get any change this year, but they've got to look in the mirror and say, hey, what are we doing to avoid this in the future? Because this roster is not built to be able to compete with the best of the best in the East. And I know Embiid mm-hmm. makes a big difference, but I even think with Embiid, Miami is showing the world that they are far better as a roster up and down than Philly is yeah, right Yeah, well, and to your point, what are they doing in the future? James Harden and getting a look at him now is certainly giving me – Uh, even further proof that I would not want to be signing him to a max deal, especially with the physical likelihood of of his drop-off. Hey, speaking of a team that's got to figure out what they're going to do going forward, I do not think the Mavs have gotten enough national attention for the amount of time they've had with a superstar on their roster and not been able to do anything with it. Doncic, 35 points on 13 of 22 shooting, but a 129-109 loss to the Suns. The Suns have been fantastic. CP3 has been the best player in this series and really stepped up in the moments when Booker was out or not 100%. Jason Kidd said it after the game, like, we cannot do this if it's just Luka out there. Yeah, he had a great game, um, but no one else showed. So, you know, we got to get other guys, uh, you know, um, shooting the ball better. Um, we can't win with just him out there scoring 30 a night, not at this time of the year. And we're playing the best team in, in, in the league. And so um, we got to get other guys going. Is it coaching? Is it roster construction? Is it Luca not getting other people involved? What are you seeing? Yeah, it, it's a bit of uh, roster construction, I think, is the biggest part of this. And you're right. Like, we've talked about it on the show and we'll continue to say, like, at some point, you got to look in the mirror if you're Dallas and say, why didn't we surround with more? And I know that they took their shots and they tried what they could to put better talent around Luka. But I asked Kesty last night going into the game, you know, 
is it possible that Phoenix's whole strategy is let's just let Luka go off because he can do whatever he wants. As long as nobody else gets in rhythm, we'll still win that game. It's what it felt like last night. And the other thing Kesty kept screaming as we were getting ready for the broadcast was there's got to be better defense from Dallas. And you didn't see it. I mean, Phoenix mm-hmm. does what they want, when they want, how they want it. Dallas doesn't have an answer. And they don't have any other person that can help with the offensive productivity. Like, Luka can go off, and it won't be enough. Luka could so- score 60, and they'll still lose because they ain't getting anything from anybody. To your point, uh, the ringer, I saw this. Uh, they're cleaning the glass. The Suns, 75% at the rim in the playoffs, 61% on long mid-range, 51% from floaters. Uh, So they're just second to the Warriors and floaters. They're crushing every other team by 11% more in the long mid-range shots. They're only really struggling from outside. So defensively, the Mavs have not been able to find too many spots where they can shut them down. We'll get into that series and also the Luka element of it. Jeff Van Gundy had some really interesting comments on playing alongside their superstar. We'll get to that later. The Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise. Coming up, we got some other NBA stories to get to. And I'm going to have to go ahead and call myself out for stupidly believing that we had heard the last of the NBA's martyr, bruh. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Listen, we're not going to go all the way to rolling out the clown car and sticking me in it, but we considered it. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. We did consider me being the latest addition to the famed Spain and Fitz clown car for idiots and morons because I thought that the end of the season for the Lakers and Nets might give us a brief reprieve about from talking about them. But Fitz, uh, they're they're in the news. They're still in the news, and of course they are because wait, wait, our Sarah, obsession with them. Here's the real question: Can't be. Stopped. Would it be a clown limo if you got like? Because like Sarah Spain is mm. riding a clown car. Like there, there's boozyness to this, right? Like right, be a clown driver, billionaire husband. I have according I mean, to the internet. I, I it think would be you're in a clown limo, like a, like a space, like a spaceship, like a clown ship. I, I like that, but like I, I kind of imagine myself as the driver of said clown, like with oh, a little hat on, driving, like driving Miss Daisy style, uh, driving Miss Spain, and that's what yeah, I, I just, yeah. I, I'm like Miss Spain. I'm thinking, what, I'm yeah. thinking, what do billionaires do? They send themselves, you know, into space in a penis-shaped ship. So if oh, I'm really going to be a billionaire, it's a, it's got to be a clown ship, and I don't know that you're equipped to drive. Yeah, I don't know that you're, I don't know that you're qualified to be my driver. Only In one way to find out, Sarah. That's right. Woo, let's go. To the moon. <laughs> uh, it's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We got some NBA stories to get to, and yes, one of them does involve Kyrie, but let's save him for later. It's Quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Uh, we'll start with Dylan Brooks, suspended for Game 3 of the Grizzlies-Warriors series after that flagrant foul on Gary Payton II. Steve Kerr absolutely irate about that and continues to be irate about the foul that has caused Brooks to be out. Uh, I'm sorry, that has caused uh, Gary Payton II to be out for several weeks with the elbow fracture. Here's Kendra Andrews, our ESPN NBA reporter on NBA Today, talking about the Warriors' reaction to Brooks' suspension. I've been talking to people in the Warriors since yesterday, and they were hoping that Brooks would be suspended now. Of course, we know that he's suspended one game, 
the Warriors will take it, but they're not necessarily happy with it. One person told me that they wanted Brooks out for at least two games, and Steve mm. Kerr went as far as to say the player who committed the foul should be suspended for as long as the injured player will be out. Of course, Gary Payton is expected to miss approximately one month. It's unlikely that he will be back uh, anytime soon, and the only way we might see him again in the playoffs is if the Warriors make it to the NBA Finals. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated, and there are a lot of takes flying around fits about you should be out as long as the player that you fouled is injured and out. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about the kind of flagrant it is and that it's been growing and 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 more, more obvious around the NBA leading up to these playoffs. But in the end, this is what the decision was. Do you agree with it? Yeah, I think it was probably the right decision. And the concept that somebody would be out as long as the person that they injured – it just speaks to how we so often expect the playoffs to be treated differently than the regular season, and I don't think mm -hmm. that's reasonable. It's already hard enough to run a league, to be an official, to do anything that they all do, but to ask for a different level of consistency in the playoffs versus the regular season doesn't make any sense. I mean, you as a Bear, as a Bulls fan, how much would you have liked to have seen Grayson Allen out for as long as Caruso was out, right? right? Like, that's yep. just not the way the NBA has worked through the regular season, and if it doesn't work that way in the regular season, I don't think we change the rules just because it was the playoffs. And to the point that this, yeah. this move has been out for a long time, it also speaks to the fact that, like, if they need to change that move, they need to change that move. But if it's out there this much, why are we freaking out about a player committing a foul that we've seen before this year like I just think there's overreaction here no I think the second half is okay if we want to crack down as we recognize that it's been uh, a little bit too flippant in terms of responding to these issues that's fine I think your first point is right though and I think it's way too difficult to argue intent and result and play the result because it could be a freak landing on not that significant of a foul that causes a lengthier injury than one that could be s severely more dangerous and just not thanks to luck or the, the way the player reacted, um, resulting in as much of an injury. So I think that's a slippery slope there. All right, next story. Quickies. Ben Simmons, back surgery. He'll be out three to four months, a microdiscectomy procedure, uh, pain in a herniated disc in his lower back. You know, I think we've said a whole lot about Simmons and we continue to not have much information to talk about when it comes to him. But Fitz, I think the weird communication around his potential return where he spoke to the media and said he anticipated coming back, but his coach and teammates all seemed like shrug. I don't know if he's coming. Um, that combined with the vagaries around stuff like back injuries where you can be ramping up, trying to return, thinking that you'll come back and experience the type of setback that lets doctors know the only solution is surgical that can make this feel weird, right? How could you say you were ready to go and now you need surgery? Well, when it comes to backs, trust me, I know, and unfortunately, my other middle-aged old people friends know that there is a very fine line between we're going to rehab you out of this and, okay, none of that is working. The only answer is surgery. Yeah, and I think part of this speaks to, I think you said it well with communication. Like, if Ben Simmons had come out from the outset and said, look, the back is better and we feel like we're making progress, but... You know, it's a day-to-day -day process. Maybe we would have a little more patience. But the fact that all of a sudden, one second he was in and then all, and then he's gone all over again makes this hard for a lot of people to understand. And we're not going to know for a long time. And that's just unfortunate. Like, he's going to have to go through this whole rehab. Now he's going to have to go through back surgery. Then they're going to have to see if his back heals up okay. Like, I just think that there's going to be months and months of questions before we get any answers. And then, by the way, by the time he gets on the court, who is he as a player? What's his mental state? Right. And how does he feel? feel about so being gone uh, from the game for so long 
I hope for his sake that physically this is a clean slate type situation and coming back at a time when an entire team is returning to play is a better mental situation than coming midway through the playoffs with a team you've never even played with. That's best case scenario for Ben Simmons, obviously way, way, way ahead of us in terms of finding all that out. All right, next story. Quickies. All right, load up the spaceship. Here we go. Kyrie Irving (laughs) goes on the boardroom podcast. And says this about being surprised by vaccine mandates and his status. I was not expecting, you know, a mandate to yeah. be brought down in a way that it wasn't going to allow me to play at all. Like, you mm-hmm. know, I had the opportunity to play away games still, but there there was no plan in place. There was no vision of like how it's going to work for our team. And I, and I think that really impacted um, not just me, but a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So. You know, just had to sit in the, sit in that hot seat for a little bit and deal with it, man. Life of a martyr, bro. Wow. Life of a martyr, bro. All right. I, Fitz, I mean, I, like I said, I had anticipated not hearing from him for a while. I do think it's sort of sad the way that Kyrie can alternately be a voice for important things like the rights of Native Americans, salaries, and... Um, offsetting COVID absences for WNBA players, speaking to issues that matter to him, and then can also have zero self-awareness when it comes to the selfishness of his decisions and the accountability that will ultimately result from those decisions that he seemed never willing to acknowledge and accept and continues to spin this martyr narrative about. Even if he was not anticipating a a vaccine mandate, uh, fine. When he came down, he still had the ability to make a decision on what he wanted to do. And he chose, if, if he feels that he's a martyr, whatever role he played in that is the role he chose to play. And that's not, uh, that, that's, at some point, he's got to turn around and say, I simply decided that this was going to be the difficulty that was worth it to me. And the way that quote sounds, it makes it sound like he was dealt a, a, a cards that he had no opportunity to have a say in. And that's just not at all the way that any of this went down. It's revisionist history for him to look at this view and see himself in this light without acknowledging the daily decisions he made and, and what role that played in all of this. Yeah, you can't recruit all these guys to come play with you and then not be available either by choice, which he was even before COVID when he had absences, or by decisions that he made around the vaccine and then deny that those were his own decisions and the effects that they had on all those other guys that he recruited and the team and their aspirations. Um, To see himself as a martyr, I think, tells you how skewed his view is on all this stuff. Um, and if he continues to not have the awareness to see the situation as it is and instead how he views it through his own prism, I think it'll be real difficult for teams to trust that he'll be consistently available for them. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. Get a business insurance quote online in as little as six minutes. Visit ProgressiveCommercial.com. Coming up on Spain and Fitz, are the Heat quietly the best team in the NBA? Are we talking about them enough? We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. Sometimes, I can't tell, like, with certain bands, you know, that are indie, everybody says, oh, well, like, they're off the grid. Nobody's ever heard of them. And then you realize that maybe everybody's talking about them. They're just trying to keep the cool factor. I can't decide if that's where we are right now with the heat because we keep saying, like, nobody's talking about the heat, but we're all talking about how nobody's talking about the heat all at (laughs) once. So, 
I haven't figured it out. We'll get some expertise on it, though. We're joined now by Jonathan Zaslow, host of the Zaslow Show on 560 WQAM. You can follow him on Twitter at Zaslow Show. Appreciate you joining us, my friend. Uh, when, when you look at the Heat, do you feel like throughout the course of the season they have been under-respected or under-reported? Well, the first thing I'm going to say, great to join you guys. When you're talking about bands, like – I better not get out of here in the next few minutes and Sarah Spain doesn't ask me about Pearl Jam, okay? I'm I mean, obviously, that, out there, all right? that was going to be the first yeah. question, but Fitz was leading the segment, so I had to wait, you know? Yeah, yeah. So wow. let, let's let's get that in at some point in a few minutes. But as far as the Heat, look, there, the Heat fan throughout the season feels that we're flying under the radar and no one's talking about us, and there's a little bit of woe is me that goes on there. Me personally – I like that nobody talks about us. I like it when we get no awards. I want our guys to be angry and feel disrespected and chips on the shoulders. But the easiest way that I could tell you guys is I think the reason that nobody talks about us, we're not flashy. We're not fancy. We play the games in the mud. We love defense. We love physicality. I mean, Pat Riley's mantra all these years, most physical, toughest, nastiest, best conditioned, hardest working team. And, like, none of that is – you know, the Golden State Warriors, like the, the fancy stuff. So, and the way that our star player, Jimmy Butler, operates, I like to say he is spectacularly unspectacular. I mean, the game will end, and he has 32 points. Like, wow, I had no idea he had 32 points. Uh, we grind out these games, you know, so I really think that's what it's about. We're not flashy to watch. Well, I think it's also about we like the hot goss. Like, that's what we're into. When you guys were fighting, I mean, you guys, I mean, the heat, on, on, mm-hmm. on the sideline in, in, in the huddle and throwing clipboards, that was the topic on, on our shows. But you didn't have people denying vaccinations and asking for trades, and, and that was it. There wasn't that much drama. Whether you want to chalk that up to heat culture or not, I'm not sure. And maybe you could help us decide the actual parameters of heat culture. Is it the lessons learned from the leadership of Pat Riley? Is it their interactions with each other? What exactly is heat culture? I think a good way to sum up heat culture is going back to something that you just said, Sarah, which is we didn't have any vaccination issues. What I mean by that is the main thing is the main. And this team, they have a goal to win the championship this year, and it's a very business-like approach. And they're not going to let any extracurricular, anything outside, any of the noise. Nothing is going to distract any one of their guys from remembering the main thing is the main thing. You know, you got some teams, hey, if they were going to go play in Toronto, I know last series that was the case of Philadelphia and Matisse Seibel, you know, we're not going to have any guys who can't travel to the game because of COVID. And I'm not trying to make this a COVID thing, but the point is, you got an entire team that is dialed in. And if we can go back to you know, the one gossipy story this year, and that was, of course, Jimmy and Spo and and UD going at it. It really was so not a big thing. It was such a little thing. It was a big thing for everybody on the outside, but it was such a little thing. We just happened to see it this time. You know, when when we say after the game, we go, hey, what what happened at halftime? How come you guys were able to turn it around? You were trailing by double figures. And then they go, well, you should have heard what UD said to us in the locker room. They said that so many times, except that time when it was on the court, we actually got to see what that looked like. That kind of stuff happens all the time. 
so the point is they can have arguments like that. They can fight like that. But they all know there's no hurt feelings. No one's getting sent to this. It's always the main thing is the main thing. So what would your level of concern be in this series if we f- suddenly find out Embiid is back for game three and he's, uh, he's going to be able to play like the monster he is? Well, I'm not concerned if he plays or not at this point because the reality of it is, whether he's in or out, he's got to lose four out of five if they're going to lose this series. So with or without Embiid, I mean, the Heat won six in a row to end the regular season. I mean, they didn't play anyone in game 82 and they lost the Magic, but they won six in a row right before that. And now in the postseason, they're 6-1. and one. They're the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They've been really good all year. They've dealt with injuries, including to Kyle Lowry, throughout the season. So this team's been through it. They've had the adversity. Joel Embiid, look, if I'm voting MVP, uh, give it to Embiid. He's been phenomenal this year. I got no problem with him winning the MVP award. But whether he plays or not, I don't think anyone that the Heat are going to play. I mean, they could be facing Boston today or they could be facing Milwaukee today. I don't think anyone's beating the Heat four out of five. So uh, my level of concern is pretty low. Jonathan Zaslow with us, host of the Zaslow Show on 560 WQAM. What are the weaknesses of the, of the Heat then? What, what is a way that you could see them uh, struggle either in this series or going forward? We haven't been good in late-game situations. Throughout the entire year, we're not good in close and late situations. And three of the four wins that we had against Atlanta were blowout wins. We were able to pull out the final game, which ended the series. That was our only close win of that series. We lost a close game the game before it by one point. This series so far, we've won by 14. We've won by 16. We're at our best when we're able to not have to be in that you know late game, two minutes left pressure situation. We have not been a good close and late team you know is that because hey you do we have that one guy who you could put the ball in his hands you know and for us it's it's jimmy butler more times than not tyler hero is usually great in the fourth quarter but jimmy is usually that guy that has the ball in his hands late in games and he has not been good late in games in the regular season this year now in the postseason two years ago in 2020 and in the bubble it was unbelievable with the game on the line close and late Luckily, we haven't had that situation yet this, this postseason, but I would say the Heat, you know, if we're going to judge based on the regular season, they're not great close and late. Who's the one team left in all of this that presents the biggest challenge to the Heat? Oh, I think it's Milwaukee, and I think that's what we're shaping up for. I think we're going to get a rubber match this year. You know, two years ago, the Heat really put on the Bucks in one in five games. Last year, the Bucks swept us. I, I think we're going for round three this year. I've said the entire year, I think Milwaukee and Miami are the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Uh, I, I think people have been sleeping. You know, I want to talk about sleeping on heat. I think we've been sleeping on Milwaukee most of the season. I've loved Milwaukee the entire year. It's a championship team. Even without Middleton, uh, I, I don't know how you watch Giannis. And, and while Boston has kept him under 50%, well under 50% these two games, I don't know how you look at Giannis and say that that's not the best player in the league. I think he's by far the best player in the league right now, just because of what he does on both ends of the floor. I uh, I think it's Milwaukee. I think it's going to be Milwaukee and Miami, and I think it's going to be uh, a fantastic series. But I mean, listen, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. You know, we haven't even played a road game yet. The Heat, this this semifinal <laughs> series, I'm projecting. Very smart, bit. very very smart of you not to give that uh, that quote about looking past past this series. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. We're talking to Jonathan Zaslow of the Zaslow Show. You can follow him at Zaslow Show on Twitter. Okay, let's get to the important stuff. Pearl Jam, what are you doing? Are you going Europe? Are you doing West Coast? Are you doing Bourbon and Beyond? How are we getting this in? 
Okay, well, I'm so happy that they, they started the tour a couple nights ago. They started it on the West Coast because I've had these tickets for two years now mm. for Madison Square Garden, all right? Me and my boy, were flying up. We're going to see them at MSG, and I didn't want to have the Heat playoffs get in the way of that. So I'm going to MSG in September. That's going to be great. I have tickets to both shows. They're playing in London Ooh. over the summer Ooh. at BST Hyde Park, but mm. I, I don't think we're making it. It was, a, it was an impulse buy. I don't think that trip is going to happen, though. That's unfortunate. I, I, yeah. I'm going to be gotta, in Europe, but I'm not going to be there at the same time as them. So I'm, I did, wasn't uh, able to play. It's just, I, I'm still waiting till my till my calendar fleshes out so that I can figure out where I can make my attack. I, I got to ask both yeah. of you a question. I know we're up yes, against it, yes. but I'll, we'll yes. start with Zaslow here. Uh, the one song you absolutely are dying to hear Pearl Jam play live is? Well, well I, look, I, I've, been, I've been to a few shows. So I, there's not, like, a song that I haven't heard them play yet. Uh, but whenever I go to a show, I'm always hoping that they play Release. It's not mm. my favorite song, but I always want them to open the shows with Release. They don't do it too often. I've seen them play it, I think, twice. Uh, I'm going Future Days because that was my wedding song, and I have never heard that live. Look at okay, that. that's good. They do not play that. I don't know how often they play it live. It's about the death of his friend, which... To be fair, Brad and I did not know when we chose it for a wedding song, but it sounds like a lovely love song about. Um, it's a, it's a know, sweet song. It's a nice song. Spending your days with your with your love, and uh, I don't think go. they play it very often, though. You guys can follow him on Twitter at Zaslow Show. Check out the Zaslow Show on five sixty WQAM. Jonathan, we appreciate your time, man. Thanks for hanging out with us. Enjoy. We we expect all the Pearl Jam reviews. After you see him, you should just call yes, in. That's right. And we'll just blow up half an hour and talk. <laughs> and, Pearl and like a live stream and like a Paris is Periscope still exists. Yes. All the things. Yes. All those things. <laughs> Thank you guys. Anytime. Thank you. Oh man, I, that, I I had to ask that question because when you have a library as deep as Pearl Jam and you do as yeah. inter- many interesting so many. things live. I think that's uh, one of the one of the cool parts of it. All right, coming up, we got an answer to a twenty year question that has affected me throughout my entire life. Mm. All right, twenty mm. years of hell I've lived through, and now I have real factual answers. We'll tell you about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Some days, Twitter just feels like it wakes up and chooses violence, like it just wants to destroy everybody's <laughs> hopes and dreams and create <laughs> arguments. <laughs> That's last couple days to. has been that, uh, not in the, in the context that you're speaking of, but <laughs> right. sure has. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and sports Twitter, you know, is, is particularly a place that can just spin everybody up. So imagine today when I'm just flipping through the tweets, and I'm looking at the Twitters, and all of a sudden I find Tom Brady, somebody that I've rooted against actively for much of my life, and I find Tom Brady out there spreading the gospel. It happened today. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and Tom Brady chose, you know, to, to wake up today and, uh, and find a little truth. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is new, improved Tom Brady. I don't know. But he took to Twitter and he said this. New trend alert. Tell me something honest. Tuck rule game against the Raiders. Might have been a fumble. <gasps> oh! oh my god tom finally coming over look i said you know all these years i said i would never root for tom brady until he admitted it was a fumble now i don't know what to do sarah i don't know am i supposed to turn around and like mm. suddenly forgive 20 years of heartbreak and 20 years of just tom brady you know you doing you know what uh, all over me all constantly well he just lets me know that it's not a fumble now all of a sudden he just walks it back can you even do that Man, things got weird there for a second. Uh, I, I'm worried for you because 
I, I mean, <laughs> you know what I almost said, Fitz? You know what? I was just caught up in the moment of doing live radio and I forgot who I was talking to. And I almost said, you're a man of your word. You know, uh, yeah, I almost yeah. for like one second yeah. forgot that it was you and thought, well, now you have to say what you said you were going to do and be a fan of Tom Brady. But you never really live up to anything, you say. So you're fair. not in a pickle at all here. You could That's absolutely fair. continue hating Tom Brady despite this revelation. I, I feel like, though, this is this is like part of the transformation of Tom. Like, there's been this weird thing, and we all want to attribute it to the fact that he got away from the Patriots, and you know. but we've still seen the little Tom temper tantrums on the sideline. We've still seen moments that have just made everybody roll their eyes. I found myself, you know, throwing up in my mouth a little bit half the time when he speaks, but I find it, there's been this process of new, funny sort of Tom, and he's done, it, it feels like he's let a little bit of the, the buttoned-up version of himself go, like Eli did when he stopped playing. We're getting that now in yep. Tom's career and now this extra moment of just pure likability when he finally admits it I, i'd like to think it's because uh charles woodson basically pinned him in on it on the 30 <laughs> for 30 on the tuck rule but there's this moment of likability when brady has figured out right now how to get everybody eating out of the palm of his hand because he's being very real and not just because i'm a raiders fan like very likable. He buys into the biggest conspiracy thing that we've talked about for two franchises for a very long time and just comes in. And he's like, yeah, it might have been a fumble. Like, that okay, is such so, a, a, a bright moment. So, a couple things, though. That is how you characterize it as a Raiders fan. I do want to ask, I'm going to put it on Twitter, uh, at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz, what celebrity or athlete or team would you most like to now acknowledge years later that there was a blown call or it should have gone a different way? Like of, of all the people, uh, we'll put that out there for the fans. But I have to ask how you think Patriots fans react to this. Of course, as a Raiders fan, and yes, it's been years and the results of the game doesn't change, but it feels cathartic to you. What do you think it feels like to them? I can only speak to the dozen or so that text me today laughing at me. <laughs> like, they're laughing at me because they got uh, all the Super Bowl rings, and, they, and then they're like, fine, you feel better now? We still have the championships. And, like, they're not wrong about it. But this is, this is for, for Raiders fans, this is the equivalent of somebody coming out and saying, hey, guess what, guys? You were right. We faked the moon landing. Like, that's, that's what Whoa. this is. Like, this is, this is the moon landing. There are chemtrails. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this would be like if Jordan was like, I pushed off. Oh, that is a good one. That is also. Which, by the way, if you say that on Twitter, I'm not going to read it. It wasn't a push-off. Check all the angles. Go cry somewhere else. That's not going to be on our show. I don't know. Like, uh, this might be bigger than the push-off. This might be Jordan coming out and saying, you're right. I was actually suspended for a year for gambling, wow. so I just took up baseball. Like, that's what Whoa. this is. Uh, this, this is, yeah, that's the level of where we're at with it. You're going I mean, conspiracy theory now, though, instead oh, yeah. of bad call. Well, like, yeah. You've because, jumped I mean, all the way to full conspiracy theory. Yeah, 100%. That's what I do. I mean, not that flair for the dramatic. It's the entertainer in me. Plus, like, remember that the, the tuck rule was never just about that one moment. I mean, most Raiders fans are convinced that that was the that was the last game. John Gruden was the coach of the Raiders at the time, and the, everybody's convinced that had that play gone a different way, the Raiders would have gone to the Super Bowl, and then all of a sudden Gruden stays, and maybe they win two or three in a row, and all of a sudden it's a dynasty for, for the Raiders, and God even knows. Maybe they didn't even make it to Vegas. Like, the trickle-down effect of the tuck rule goes into this entire spider web of conspiracy that I spend too many hours sitting around thinking about in the middle of football season. So <laughs> that's why I think it's it's the equivalent. Like it's Jordan-esque in that. It, it's definitely at that level. Where can people go find all that coverage you did on the tuck rule? 
Oh yeah, we did a uh, you uh, on ESPN Plus. We did a uh, a reaction show to the thirty for thirty. The thirty for thirties are out there all over. If you have Hulu, you can also check it out there. So uh, the thirty for thirty on the Tuck Rule was actually one of the best I think I've seen. And I went in. We, I watched it and it hurt every second of it, but seeing <laughs> Charles Woodson and Tom Brady speak so real about it, but then also the filmmakers deciding to film CGI alternate realities of what would have happened if that, that game didn't turn out that way. And even Brady acquiesced. He's not sure he would have been the starting quarterback the following mm. year. Like uh, Bledsoe would have, uh, in his mind, would have come back and had the opportunity to get his job back. So you think about all of that for him to turn around and be like, oh, it was a fumble. He can yeah. laugh about it now. Yeah, I don't know if course, you saw Woodson's they... response, but Woodson did not <laughs> laugh about it. That's what I'm saying. Like, no skin off his back, I guess, in terms of the results of the game and the resulting legacy he's had. It does make you maybe feel a little better that he admitted it, but almost worse that you're like, yeah, we know. We know, and there's nothing we could do about it. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. I think your pent-up anger about the tuck rule is what caused your anger about the Washington Commanders news today because I saw it and I thought it was delightful. That's I was like, stupid. this is great. Oh my stupid. gosh. That's so nice. I'm. They've righted their wrong. And you're like, this is dumb. No one wants a marching band. Yeah, look, Explain the, the, the story and why you're such a curmudgeon. Yeah, the Washington Commanders are bringing back the marching band that they had for many, many years. 87 is, years. Yeah, so they had a marching band. Look, look, first and foremost, let's be real. This all comes from the fact that there's not a marching orchestra, so I'm already out on marching band. Like, just because you play the tuba doesn't mean you should get free tickets to a football game, number one. But number two, how many people are going to turn around this year and be like, I wasn't going to go to the Washington Commanders game. The entire organization is a cluster, you know what. But hey, marching band, let's go honey pack up the car and go see well, the game listen i agree with you do you, you don't think i'm would ever go out of my way to uh, to compliment them on anything i'm just saying that if you have an 87 year legacy and people who are part of that band presumably care and some fans have an attachment to it getting rid of it was stupid and the rest of that team is stupid so at least have one nice thing about them. At least one thing that they got right, which is don't get rid of an 87-year-long tradition of a cool marching band. Bringing it back is the right move. I'm going to go just outwardly boo and hiss them after their songs and tell them they stink. Tune into the ESPN fiddles? Daily Podcast. Get you a deep dive fiddles. into a single story <laughs> from one of ESPN's hundreds of reporters presented by Supercuts. Download, subscribe, and review ESPN Daily, available wherever you get your podcast. I don't know why I don't like nice things today. All right, do the 76ers have any chance to get back into their series with the heat we'll break it down and get some answers next spain and fitz hanging out with you on espn radio and as always on the espn app it's not that long ago the thought of 76ers heat was the sort of series that everybody would be hyped for now feels like maybe it's time to stick a fork in it maybe it's done or is it? We'll find out from an expert. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. By the way, keep it coming on the uh, uh, the moments, uh, teams and uh, athletes that you wish would come out and just admit that they uh, – they, they were wrong uh, because some of these tweets, the misery being tweeted to us is really spectacular right now. We'll get some of those responses coming up. But in the meantime, let's get joined now by Derek Bodner. You can check him out, the Daily 676ers reporter. Follow him on Twitter at Derek Bodner NBA. Derek, appreciate your time, man. Obviously, this series has started out uh, with uh, Philly being dominated, but there's been no Joel Embiid for either of the first two games. So how much can we actually take from the matchups we've seen with no Joel? 
Yeah, well, you really can't take too much from this series um, because Joel Embiid, obviously, it's why he's an MVP candidate, changes everything from the quality of shots they're able to generate on offense to how effective they are stopping Miami's attack to how they are on the glass. You know, the Sixers went to a zone there in game one, gave up a ton of offensive rebounds, a ton of second-chance points. Joel Embiid plugs a lot of those holes. But at this point, it doesn't really matter too much how much you can take away from it because the end result is the Sixers are, you know, halfway to being out of the playoffs. And you are two losses away. You have to win four of the next five games. You still don't know whether or not Joel Embiid is going to be available for game three. He is currently listed as out. That could change before Friday night. But so far, it doesn't look great. Um, So whether or not you can take a whole lot away from it, no, you can't. But what you can take away from it is the Sixers are in a pretty big hole. You know, it makes sense that they are getting killed in the paint and getting out-rebounded significantly, second-chance points. All of that checks out when Joel Embiid is out, but they cannot buy a three-pointer. Eight for 30 in Game 2 from beyond the arc. How much does Joel's presence inside for the inside-out game or his own ability to hit those shots contributing to their lack of threes? Yeah, I mean, he certainly helps. I do think they're getting, especially in Game 2, they got a lot of pretty good looks in Game 2. Shots that, you know, George Niang who so far in this series, I think George is one for 10 from three-point range. Danny Green had a number of pretty open corner threes. He is, you know, two for 14 so far in the series. They've gotten some pretty good looks here that I think they would normally make and that I think they need to make if they're going to steal a game or two while Joel Embiid um, comes back from protocols. Certainly Joel Embiid and the attention he receives and the double teams he generates gives them easier looks. But I don't want to take all of that off of, you know, Danny Green and George Niang and all of the six perimeter shooters because they have gotten good enough shots, shots that they should be contributing more than they have been, uh, and they have to make those shots down. The Sixers, quite honestly, I was pretty impressed with the way they were able to generate pretty good open looks for a lot of their shooters in game two. They just didn't capitalize. And you're not going to – if you're the underdog, the under-talented team, playing on the road against the top seed in the East without your best player – you have to shoot the lights out of the ball, and they've gone in the complete opposite direction. You're listening to Spain and Fitz. There's Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Derek Bodner, the Daily 676ers reporter. So let's be fair and reasonable when it comes to James Harden because it's easy to yell about whatever the expectations are. You've covered this team. You've watched him through this series. What's a fair assessment of how he has played so far? Yeah, I think I think it's it's tough because on the one hand, there's – sort of the expectation Sixers fans had of what he would bring when they made the trade. And clearly he has not lived up to expectations. There's also a lot of concern over what that next contract is going to look like and how he will age and what kind of a player you're committing all of that money and all of those years to. I think both those are hundred percent fair, but I think when I watch James Harden right now, it's very clear to me that he is not the player he was even two years ago. Now, what, how much of that is a hamstring and recovering from that and how much of that is just aging, we don't know, and that will be a big part of the discussion that we have with his next contract. But if you look at the way that he has struggled to get by guys off the dribble against Toronto during his time uh, with the Sixers, I think he's actually playing pretty well right now. You know, he had nine assists there in game two. If the Sixers weren't shooting cross-side, he probably has 13 to 15 assists. I think he created a lot of pretty good looks. And I think Miami's been overloading to his side and trying to really take away his driving lanes. And I think if you ask James Harden to try to be the 30, 35-point-per-game scorer, 
and play that kind of ball with the way Miami is defending him, uh, I think that would lead to some pretty bad results. So I give him a little bit of credit for playing a style of play that I think has a better chance of working. But in order for that to happen, his, you know, his, his shooters have to make shots. So I think it's a combination of he's not who he was a couple of years ago. And that's tough to watch, especially when you're talking about committing all that money to him. But I don't think he should be trying to play hero ball because, quite frankly, I just don't think he's capable at this stage of his career. Yeah, he's getting absolutely smothered defensively, but he also isn't the guy who can create enough shots to make up for the misses, right? He's not, he has yet to take 20 or more shots in a game since joining the team. So I think you're right. It's a combination of uh, what they're presenting on defense and also his, he, he's just not able to to create in the same way anymore. Let's talk about Matisse Seibel. He looks lost. What are you seeing? Yeah, I think he looks very lost. I, I agree with that for sure. You know, it's, it's tough. On the one hand, he, you know, he missed three games against the Toronto series because he was not fully vaccinated and could not travel to Toronto. And I think that took him, you know, before that series, before the last couple games of the regular season, when they knew that they were going to play Toronto and they started preparing for it, he was starting in that starting lineup. And I think he was in a better rhythm. He only has himself to blame for being taken out of that rhythm, but I think it has impacted him. And you're talking about a guy now who over the last, you know, what, I think three or four games, I think he scored maybe two buckets. And one of those buckets was against Toronto in game six when – a Toronto Raptor player tipped the ball in the basket after MT shot it, so he didn't even score that bucket. He has made legitimately one basket here over the last three or so games. He looks completely lost on offense, and Toronto is completely abandoning him when he's in the corner and making life even more difficult for Tyrese Maxey and James Harden. Um, they are playing three-on-five a lot with DeAndre Jordan and, 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 and Paul Reed and Matisse Thibel it's become real tough to play Matisse Thibel given how much um, Miami's not guarding him. I don't expect that to change. I quite frankly don't expect that to change even if he makes a couple of shots. They need him to develop some semblance of an offensive game, something he has not really done much in a lot in the three years that he has been in the NBA. Because in the playoffs, against these really good defenses, against the really smart and disciplined defenses, it tends to cost them. And Miami is maybe the wrong defense to be playing uh, that style of player against. This feels so doomsday, Derek. I mean, e- even if there's a hope that Embiid can get back in this series, can Philly tread water long enough to make that have any impact? Yeah, well, here's the funny thing. with the way. It, so I think that defensively they just have no real shot until Embiid comes back. And maybe Miami has another game like game one where they just miss shots and that gives them a chance. But I don't think they're going to defend Miami well until Embiid comes back. He's that important to what they do. Offensively, I was actually pretty encouraged by what they did in game two. But when you shoot eight for 30 on the road, you're just not going to win very many of those games. So I think a lot of it does come down to if Joel Embiid was playing these first two games, I think there's a decent chance they are one and one and coming back home for two. And I think this would be an entirely different interview. But I don't, you know, I think there's a little bit of pessimism about Joel Embiid playing in game three. You lose that game, you're down 0-3. No team has ever come back from that in NBA history. And they don't have any real way to scratch out a win, to claw out a win. If their shots aren't going in, they're not going to dig in defensively uh, and really shut Miami down. That's not the team that they have. They're not going to win the, the turnover battle by a large margin or the rebounding battle. That's not the team that they have. So I think a lot of this pessimism comes down from the fact that Joel Bede's status doesn't look certain. And it's also, actually out now, officially. For three. Well, he's listed as out. Yeah. My understanding is that um, 
because it's you have to clear protocols, you have to list them as either he cleared it or he's out. So because oh, he hasn't cleared okay, so yet, my still, understanding is mm. that could still theoretically change before tomorrow. But you are correct. He is currently listed as out. And like I said, I think that leads to some pessimism. But also, I just don't see a way for this team to pull off an upset unless they make shots at a high volume. And after watching the first two games, they're not making any shots. It's, it's tough to watch. It's great stuff from Derek. We appreciate you hanging out with us, Derek. Follow him on Twitter, at Derek Bodner, NBA. Check him out on the Daily 676ers reporter there. Uh, great insight. All right, we're only one day away from the WNBA starting back up. Could we be heading for expansion? We'll explain what we're talking about next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, and Sirius XM Channel 80. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, we're presented by Progressive Insurance. And look, we're right up against the start of the WNBA season, and I'm not just excited about it because I think it's the only time I've ever beaten Sarah in anything. The one bet that I've ever won <laughs> mm-hmm. was about the, the Aces in the Chicago Sky in the regular season last Did year. Candace no, it's not about that. And then we won the title, so it didn't matter. I mean, details, details. But then <laughs> what, what happened? Mark Davis came in and said, hey, uh, when it, just having a great regular season isn't enough and invested heavily in the coaching staff, and uh, the Las Vegas Aces are ready for a, a big run this year. I'm feeling good. feeling froggy. But there's a real conversation to have. The Mystics and Indiana Fever open up the season at 7 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. And we've talked a little bit about something that I, I, I think it's fair to say plagues the league right now, Sarah. And that is that great players, high drafted players, players with incredible resumes and players capable of playing at the highest professional level simply can't find their way onto rosters because there aren't enough teams and there aren't enough roster spots. And the WNBA has got to find a solution to this. Yeah, it's something we've talked about for years because unlike some other sports, you can be drafted in the first round. You can be a high pick and not make a roster, and that comes from the fact that there aren't very many teams. At most, there are 144 players total in the league, but often it's more like 133. And Brianna Stewart tweeted out that she hates the fact that there are so many cuts. Salaries went up because they did increase the highest possible Salary, maximum salary by 94% from 2019 to 2022, but they only increased the hard cap by 38.5%, which means you can spend more to get the top players, but you're left with less to pay everyone else. And so in the case of the WNBA, that means you're not keeping players on your roster that aren't contributing. There should be an ability, and this is what Brianna Stewart is calling for, for practice players or players who are not um, going to make the, the court to be on the roster without affecting the cap. Have a soft cap so that you can develop young talent and take advantage of these players and the momentum that they have coming out of March Madness, which is getting bigger and bigger. And Elena Deladon was on NBA Today and talked about that today, specifically the roster cuts, but also looking around and being like, man, there's no young people. It's heartbreaking to see, and you don't want to see that for our game, especially if we want this game to continue to grow and be great down the road. You can't have all vets right now and then no youth coming up. Yeah. Uh, so we've got to find a way to continue to develop our youth who are coming into this game. There just aren't enough spots, and we got to find a way to change it. Fitz, the 2020 WNBA Rookie of the Year, Crystal Dangerfield, is not on a roster. The 2020 Rookie of the Year, can you imagine starting your professional career with that kind of impressive form, with the excitement of what's to come next, and not being on a roster? And that speaks to the amount of talent that is just sitting there waiting for opportunity. And 
one of the fails for all of the women that are trying to find a way to play professional basketball is that uh, we've already dealt with the financial fails, right? There's so many of them that play in the WNBA have to then go over and play in Europe mm-hmm. just to make the living that they should be able to make simply uh, by playing in one league. And, uh, and th- now on top of that, you're making it even more impossible to find an available roster spot. And, you know, you think about And I've said this before, but I think it's worth mentioning again, the rise that we're seeing right now in incredible talent at the college level. This is only going to get more pinched in. It's only going to get more difficult. And it's why the league has got to make a decision at some point to become aggressive and figure out where they can start to expand. You know, I'll go back to my weekend in, in the MLS where I played the anthem for the open of the new stadium and uh, in Nashville. And it wasn't that long ago that MLS was a dream in Nashville. And now they sit here five years later with a beautiful swanky stadium that's almost impossible to get a ticket to. So I look at it and say growth is possible. You just have to be aggressive and have a plan. Easier said mm-hmm. than done. But the right now has to be focused on that for the WNBA for growth of the game and good for all of the players. Yeah, one thing I'll say, and it's Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, Spain and Fitz, is the vagaries around the WNBA's financial situation are especially frustrating because they allow uninformed people to continue the same BS about it, you know, never being profitable and it's being funded by the NBA and all this other stuff. This is a league that just had a massive, massive investment to the tune of $75 million. This is a league that has the ability to think more future and more forward in terms of treating it like a startup where you invest with the expectation that you're going to lose early and the eventual payoff because of the awareness and the spend and the marketing and all of that um, growing the game. And I think that's how they have to view expansion too. There needs to be a geographical um, expansion that allows for more people to have a team closer that they can attend and for more of those players to be able to make a roster and continue to have the excellent talent stay in the United States and play in the WNBA instead of going overseas. Now I understand that's easier said than done from this perspective, and it is difficult to continue to grow a relatively nascent league, but Fitz, I just don't think you can continue to operate on a sort of break-even level for fear that an overinvestment or overexpansion hurts. I think you do it wisely and you do it with containment so you're not overextending, but I think it's far past time. Yeah, and you've got to look at it, like you said, like any startup. I'd say like any business. In fact, uh, people may remember, but in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, Dunkin' Donuts overexpanded. And because they overexpanded, they almost closed as a company. And they had to turn around, they had to shut down a bunch of stores, and then they had to figure out how to make an expansion plan that made more sense for them. They veered through the market, they went through the tough times, and then they started as a company to say, how do we begin growth again in a way that makes the most sense? I understand that the WNBA has looked at these things in the past, but they've got to now, as a corporation, look at it. And frankly, I think the, the fan conversation around it, it, it there's just there is more and more demand. That that's undeniable. You can see the TV mm-hmm. numbers and uh, that it, it just stacks up. Uh, there is also a change in, at least in, in some ways, there's been a change in some of the narrative around it. Again, I'll go back to the growth of the MLS, like how many people around soccer have looked at it and said, look at this. Finally, we're seeing some growth in soccer in America. This is great. Let's find a way to make it even bigger. That's part of the tone conversation that needs to change around the WNBA as well. Like everybody needs to get on board with the startup that is becoming bigger. And and once you do that, I think it becomes easier to embrace, hey, what are a couple of markets that we could go into that make sense and then let those get a, a real hold on their market. And then you move from there. It just feels like 
they have to at some point decide that it's time to stop looking at it and you've just got to jump in. You, you've got to take the leap. Otherwise, the product suffers because great players don't get on the court. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think we talked about that actually at the ESPNW Summit. Nicole Lavoy, who's the head of the Tucker Research Center um, uh, for Women and Girls in Sport, talked about how the conversation needs to update and change because repeating a lot of the same narratives and stereotypes and falsehoods about women's sports and professional games um, allows for that to be continued. And particularly in the case of the WNBA, there has been tremendous growth. If you look at the NBA around the same age, they were not selling out stadiums. Sometimes they were still tape delaying games. Um, and so w the expectation for these leagues to be at the same level as the men's leagues, as young as they are, and the investment levels, the political, the taxpayer dollars that they're not getting, all of that is, is silly. Um, uh, Mystics, Fever, open up the season, 7 Eastern tomorrow night. And just a note, uh, Brittany Griner, the U.S. has changed her status in terms of how they see it. They're now asking people to talk about it and spread the word that she should be returned to the United States and she is being held unfairly. The league, for its part, is doing some things, including acknowledging Griner on the court for all of the games as the season starts without her and also helping give money to one of the causes she cares most about that, that deals with people who are unhoused. Um, so that status has changed, Fitz, and that'll be interesting to keep an eye on. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. What do you home and auto have in common? They're yours, and Progressive protects them both. Bundle today at Progressive.com. We'll get into some college athletics and disturbing trends next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz. Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz with you on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're going to talk about a tough topic here, but we're bringing on someone that knows a lot about it, Kate Fagan. And Kate, you know, I was I was so moved by your book, What Made Maddie Run. I know you've spent a lot of time since the writing of it just talking about it and continuing to look into the issue of mental health and student athletes. And just in recent weeks, we've seen Stanford goalkeeper Katie Meyer, Wisconsin track and cross-country star Sarah Schultz, JMU softball player Lauren Bennett, all of them die by suicide. It's a disturbing trend that we're seeing across collegiate athletics. Um, and, and thinking of all the research that you've done, I know it's not going to be the same in each case. They're all different. But what are the factors that you can talk about that you think are contributing to this trend? Yeah, I mean, there's when I wrote the book on Madison Holleran, who died by suicide, track star at Penn, it, we, from the outset, we were like, we don't know that all of these variables have impacted Madison, the ones that we outlined, but we wanted to share them as cultural issues that people should be paying attention to. And I want to home in on a lot of the sports ones that I think are important. And again, I mean, you said this, Sarah, but just to reiterate, this doesn't mean that I think each one of these factors impacted the, the student athletes we've seen die by suicide in the last two months, but I think they're important for sports fans to recognize. And the, the big one is the, the overall system of sports and the way it has evolved over the last generation puts so much intense pressure on kids. And I think we talk a lot about youth sports, and it's kind of recognized culturally as almost like a joke, like, oh, you know, parents are just so over-involved. Mm. But when you really dig into the culture at the youth sports level and the commercial commercialization and professionalization of it, even on the women's side, it really starts the overwhelming pressure on kids in a young age. And then coming up into an NCAA system that is not built for them. It's one, it's not built for the student athlete, and two, it's especially not built for the female student athlete. And 
coming of age in that system can be very challenging, especially if then you add in the other factors that we certainly saw with Maddie, which was like a genetic history of depression, um, something you might call like destructive perfectionism. And so, and then add in social media and the ways that it, that is manipulating kids' brains that we don't even quite know how to articulate yet. You're kind of swimming in this sea of variables right now. So, Kate, in this conversation, you've mentioned how, especially for women, there isn't the structure. Why are we seeing this alarming rate, in your opinion, at this point on that side of it, but we haven't necessarily seen the same rise from men's college athletics? I mean, I think there's a lot of factors to consider, and I, and in no way am I saying, like, these are definitely them. I think if you, if you pulled back the scope on student-athlete death by suicide to include even the first five to seven years postgraduate, you would, you would then start to be encapsulating a number of male student-athletes, whether on the football side and possibly then we're, we're talking about CTE issues. But it tends to be that male athletes grapple with some of these issues, certainly, certainly in like a silent way in college, because society still isn't encouraging them to speak openly about these things, despite the changes that we've seen, like on the NBA level and Olympic level with some athletes speaking out. But if you pulled back that scope, you, you would be surprised by the numbers, even on the, on the men's side. Now I can't say for certain exactly, you know, in these last eight weeks, I mean, I've been blindsided by, by three in such a condensed amount of time. These things do have tend to happen in clusters. And another thing that I've, really been thinking about since reading about all um, all of what's happened is the impact of the pandemic on on people's mm-hmm. mental health and I'm not saying that I you know that I've done reporting on these particular cases but I was at a, a division one school talking to student athletes a month ago and I was sitting next to a student athlete and she mentioned she was a junior and she was in her first semester actually being on campus mm-hmm. around people I mean that that was unfathomable, unfathomable to me that she was a junior and this was her first semester, like truly immersed in the college experience. So I don't know that that's playing a factor, but it's kind of the one distinguishing feature that we've seen over the last two years. Kate Fagan is with us on Spain and Fitz. She's the co-host of off the looking glass podcast on Meadowlark media, multi-time New York times bestselling author who's written particularly about uh, one college aged athlete who died by suicide and has done a lot of work on it. And Kate, when you talk about um, the effect of the pandemic, it reminds me also that we're in such nascent stages of understanding uh, the pandemic's effects on people of every age, particularly college age, though. And, and same goes for social media. And one of the best parts of your book, What Made Maddie Run, was that intermixed with the story of Maddie herself were chapters that were more broadly about better understanding the declining mental health of college kids and how social media seemed to play such a significant role, but that we haven't had enough time to understand it. As the years have passed and you've continued to be interested in this, what else have you learned about how much that affects student athletes and students in general? I think we'll have more clear when you look at, you know, I'm, I'm not a social scientist, so I'm going to use words that I don't quite understand here, but like longitudinal, longitudinal studies, right, where you're looking at over, 10 years you might study this and you have to wait that long before you really can come to some answers about the actual effects. I think we're still a couple years away from saying, look, this is what the actual science is saying about the deterioration, if that's what it's going to be, about how this impacts kids and social media. I, I can say that 
I think when people think about, oh, social, you know, social media, like we tend to just exist on the idea that we've all kind of accepted that, you know, it's not an accurate reflection of life. But when I was looking at just in particular Madison Holleran's death by suicide to like our, to try to illuminate for the listeners something that really blew my mind was that on the night that Maddie died, she took a picture for Instagram and, you know, because I had her computer, I could see how many times, how much time and how many times she spent filtering that photo. Mm. And she filtered it, Sarah, like seven times. Wow. And this is someone who was in a state of mental health that would lead to her death two hours later. And yet the projection of what her life looked like was of paramount importance to her. And I think using that anecdote to, to then, you know, map on to what we're seeing from student athletes about how it might impact them, like his all of those students, not all of them, but like Katie Myers, you, you, could have, you could see how she was living her life on social media. And certainly it was not revelatory of anything that ended up happening. But you can imagine how this public performance is impacting sense of self, self-understanding, where you exist in the world, your relationship to your team and your sport. I mean, all of that is being affected in ways that we just we can't put like pinpoint yet. Kate, what systems are schools putting in place to help support the athletes that are obviously going through this? There's, there's so much that college athletics has done in the last five years. Going like a simple, you know, data point is five, six years ago, something, something around, you know, maybe, maybe 10 of the FBS schools had a mental health professional on staff. I haven't done the numbers in the last year, but the last time I checked, we were up toward almost 100%. So there is, there, when you just look at money, it's being invested in saying this is an issue and we need to make sure that we're like providing resources. But for anyone who has played college sports or has been involved in athletics, you know that the culture is driven often, often by a coach. So this, it becomes a thornier issue than just our athletic departments, you know, paying a couple hundred thousand dollars to have certain people on staff because a culture of a team and a way an experience is for a student athlete is driven by a coach. So then you, got, then you have to get into coaching philosophies and generational trauma in coaches and the way college athletics tends to overtrain. So there's, there's so many issues that can't be, you can't throw money at and you can't necessarily regulate from the NCAA level. These are cultural issues within athletic departments and within like the, the nature of how those systems work that become, it becomes so tricky to just say, yeah, they're trying to do better, but this is the way student athletes respond to counseling and the ways they want to respond to counseling. Do they want to go across campus or do they want it to be within the student athletic department? These are all things that are so personal to people. So you're seeing athletic departments wanting to help, but not quite knowing what to do. And Kate, that feels like a theme across all this. Kate Fagan's with us here on Spain and Fitz that um, clearly the trend is, is, is debilitating. It's, it's, it's horrific, but um, there is no simple solution across both professional and collegiate sports and beyond um, to mental health issues. So continued understanding and research is really the only way to get us closer to um, making the problem better. But obviously your voice on this is super helpful. We really appreciate you giving us some time. Yeah, thanks to you both for having me on. Awesome stuff from Kate. Again, 
Off the Looking Glass podcast with Meadowlark Media. Also read her books, What Made Maddie Run, and All the Colors came out. Both spectacular reads. Uh, coming up, we got to get back to some of the NBA conversation we had earlier in the show. Interesting sound about Luka Doncic, a great talent, but tough to play with. We'll get into it next. Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. We uh, we opened a can of worms, Fitz. Uh, we thought We thought we were offering people some catharsis, but... I fear instead we've just uh, dug too far into the past. We've opened up old wounds in asking people uh, to, to look at Tom Brady, acknowledging that the tuck rule might have been a fumble, and say which one player or team they most wish could admit to a bad call from the past. And they keep coming. It is an endless stream of people's most horrific sports moments, blown calls, bad whistles, players, teams, officials that have so much that they should acknowledge and admit to. Uh, In the end, Fitz, you know better than anyone as a Raiders fan, the call doesn't change, the game isn't won, Uh, but something feels good, I guess, about being being told you're right. It's Payne and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. I mean, do you actually feel better today that Tom Brady said that was a fumble, or does it actually hurt more to know that even he agrees that you were robbed? No, no, no. It, it feels better because now, like every Patriots fan that's ever tried to defend the play, I can be like, "I'm sorry, your your Jesus <laughs> said it was a fumble." Like the minute Brady says it, now it has to be accepted as like the common, you know. That at this point, it has to be the logic everybody takes. So it feels good because nothing's going to give you the win. Like nothing's going to turn yeah. around and change you know, over a decade of misery and watching football. But there is that little twinge where you're like, you know what? Things are looking up for all things Raiders right now because at least Tom admitted that they mm-hmm. got it wrong. We got everything from more conspiracy theory types saying that the Camden Yards grounds crew would have to admit they killed the lights to keep Cal Ripken's streak alive. There is a whole multi-part podcast about that if you are interested in the conspiracy behind that whole thing. Um, Germany World Cup finals, quarterfinals, I should say, against the U.S. in 2002 gets brought up. Whole bunch of people want uh, Moises Alou to say he never could have caught that Bartman ball instead of blaming him. <laughs> uh, the Immaculate Reception brought up a lot. The Music City oh, Miracle boy, brought up a lot. Maradona. Uh, I mean, it is it is an endless stream of some of people's most painful moments uh, in the sports world. Drew Pearson pushing Nate Wright. Um, Larry Bird out of bounds when he stole from Isaiah in the 87 Eastern Conference Finals. Even our old producer, Stosh chimed in to say that Cardinals fans would say the 85 Royals, Don Deckinger blew it. Uh, so uh, everybody's got something to say about this. I, I imagine the rest of the evening, my menchies are going to look like this Fitz. So that's when uh, you know, you got it right, but you're yeah. also like, yeah, the rest of the night, this is just going to yeah, we'll be not be able to There's, find yeah. anything else, which is sometimes no. for the best on Twitter. If it drowns everything else out uh, at Sarah Spain, at Jace Fitz at Spain and Fitz. If you want to go check out all of the grievances that people wish would be remedied uh, earlier in the show, Fitz, we were talking about whether the Mavs and uh, the Sixers are done. They are both in O2 holes. Now, to be fair, they're going to go home now. Both teams get a chance to remedy this, and there is that old cliche that no series starts until somebody wins a road game. There is that opportunity. But in the case of the Sixers, Joel Embiid's health is the key. The, he is technically still out for Game 3 right now. Uh, because of the nature of his injury, he can't be cleared until the last minute. So he will remain as, as listed as out, but there is still a chance he could play. But that series looks like it'll go the way of Miami. Um, even if Embiid returns, you don't know exactly at what percentage he'll be. And that team I always had questions about after that initial Raptors series, which I thought they would win. Um, and I feel pretty certain even if Embiid comes back, that he'd have that one. Do you agree? 
Yeah, a, a thousand percent. I mean, the, the Heat are clearly the better team. And, and look, nobody will ever know what it would have looked like if it was 100% of Joel Embiid. Mm-hmm. But even 100% of Joel Embiid in this series, and I still think I might have leaned Heat, anything less than 100%, I definitely think it's over. Yeah, and you do have to always take into account the injury. In the case of the Suns-Mavs series, it's the Suns who at first we thought could have a miracle season, start to finish regular season dominance affected by serious injury. Booker returned faster than I expected. And frankly, Chris Paul has been otherworldly at certain times during the series, both the first round and now the second round, in order to keep the Suns on track to another trip to the finals. Interestingly, in this series, as we watch the Mavs and their center of their universe, Luka Doncic, play very well, despite his injury earlier in the postseason, Jeff Van Gundy doesn't see it as simply as just Luka needs more help around him. He was on KJ and Max and said Luka is hard to play with. I think the heavy ball dominant guard, I mean, he's gone one step above James Harden for ball dominance, even back when James Harden was with Houston. And I think Doncic is the hardest guy to guard in the league now. Like, I think he's that good. I'm mesmerized by the talent. And yet, I ask myself when I watch just how difficult it must be to play on that team because you get the ball so infrequently and you know it's going to be a high pick and roll with Doncic. If it's a switch, it's going to be an ISO. It's not that he doesn't pass the ball. He does pass the ball. But that dominance of the ball in one person's hands, I'm not sure exactly how you surround that player the very best other than to have shooting and you know, as many defensive-minded players as you can. But I don't have a perfect guy because how would you fit in offensively with Doncic? I think it's difficult. He's not the first to say this, but in the past, particularly when it was someone like Brian Windhorst, the claim was that Luca always barking at officials, teammates, etc., uh, front office members of the Mavs. His constant gripes with everyone make him a difficult person to play alongside. This is more specifically about his play, but I think they can be combined fits. He has had issues with coaches and teammates and front office folks, and now you do have to question how his usage rate, which is higher than anybody else on any team in the league, affects the guys around him trying to figure out where they fit in. Yeah, and this becomes what's really interesting because we always look at great players with the context of who wants to play with them and how great can they be, right? Like that becomes the next building block. We've seen Ja be able to elevate so many people around him in Memphis, and they've also done a nice job of finding complementary players that skill sets uh, work well with him. There's been a struggle in Dallas and earlier and, and throughout the course, I think, over the last few weeks. We've really been clear and I think tough on Dallas about not taking better advantage of the fact that they have a young superstar in Luka. If Luka is a difficult player to build around, whether that's because of personality or because of play type, that's a challenge that the Mavericks are going to have to figure out because as difficult as that may be, there aren't a lot of Lucas in the NBA. So if you're Dallas, you got to start looking and thinking, what is the missing piece that can make us take a gigantic leap forward? Otherwise, we're just wasting our time with a great player that we're not getting enough out of. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look you know, the poor Zingas trade. I knew that that was not the right move. I did not have belief in that guy. They took a big chance on that investment, making that trade and eventually had to cut their losses and, and, and trade him at this, at this deadline. That wasn't the combination that I thought was going to work. 
um, they do have some talented players. And there have been guys that during this series, especially early, or during this postseason, I should say, especially early, stepped up and made it so that the Mavs outperformed expectations when Luka was sidelined. Brunson, for one. But, you know, you look at that last game, nine points from Brunson. You look at guys that should be stepping up. Spencer Dinwiddie, 11 points. Um, this th- That's not enough. Um, in fact, beyond Luke, uh, Lucas 35 in that loss to the Suns last night, the next highest scorer was Reggie Bullock at 16. You just need mm. more than that from your supporting cast. Yeah, that's never going to get you where you need to be, and there isn't an easy answer for it. And also, as they continue to figure out, like as as much as we were talking about earlier, the Sixers have to make decisions with Harden. The Mavs are going to have to figure out where the problem is, whether it's roster construction from a GM standpoint or from a star standpoint. But you just can't keep running it back and wasting year after year with a great player. Yeah, uh, and I, I, I wonder if you can venture a guess as to why they don't hear it as much as some other places, just the market size. Yeah, I, I, it's got to be part of it, right? Like, I, I don't know because I always think of it as being a destination that people would want to go to. A great owner that's super involved in the NBA, yeah. that that's super involved with the players. It feels like it should have all of the little things right. Yeah, it feels like we definitely talk more about a place like the Blazers not being able to make good on Damon CJ than we do about something like this. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.